Hey guys, welcome to another episode of The Right Way Program. One of the first, the second for 2021, but who's keeping count? I am, certainly. But uh, today I want you all to welcome a Sydney-based author, uh, formerly a journalist who has written columns uh, for quite an extensive career for the likes of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, a guy by the name of Dan Kaufman. Dan Kaufman is going to be talking to me about his debut uh, published novel, Drowning in the Shallows. Uh, so please all give a big digital round of applause to Dan Kaufman appearing on The Right Way discussing Drowning in the Shallows. Dan, thank you so much for joining me on The Right Way program. How are you doing today? Good, good, thank you. How are you going? I'm good, I'm good. I'm very good. Last day to be enjoyed. Um, let's start off with a question I always like to ask because it's always very interesting, but where did the idea for Drowning in the Shallows stem from? What did it come from? Was it an image, an idea? What? Uh, it actually came from a few places. And look, I don't know what happens with other authors, but with me it actually came from a couple of aborted ideas and it sort of steamrolled into it. Mm. Uh, you know, up until now, to be honest, I, I was, I used to basically tell people that it's simply all fiction and it's sort of based on my life, but it isn't. Mm. But actually in the past week, I was thinking for some reason about the novel Fight Club. And I remember that actually Fight Club gave me the first inspiration behind the novel. Mm. Where, and look, I love the book Fight Club. Uh, and it's a clever book because it works on two different levels. On one hand, it's kind of a comedy in a way, but on the other hand, so many people take it quite seriously. And I remember that actually I knew all of these people who read the book and took it really, really seriously, you know, where, you know, they really, you know, embraced the whole Nietzschean philosophy of it. Mm. And, and I kind of thought it might be funny to write a book from the character who really just, completely fucked up this whole approach to it and took a very shallow idea instead, you know, rather than trying to become a better person, he just wanted to become a shallow person. And he mm. thought, screw this, there's nothing to life. So he kind of took bits and pieces from Fight Club, but he kind of ignored a lot of the other things, even though Fight Club still isn't meant to be idealistic by any stretch mm. of the imagination, uh, except if you see the movie and that feels a little different maybe. Uh, so that's actually how it came about. It was actually meant to be a parody of the kind of people he liked, Fight Club. Even though I myself actually liked it, I loved it. So that's how it started. Mm. And so I sort of started writing it and the character was even meant to sort of try and imitate the tones of Fight Club of, you know, Tyler Durden and the narrator. And then I suddenly thought, well, at the time I was working as a journal at the Herald and I had to review bars and I had to cover the social scene. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, if the guy's going to approach, you know, embrace a shallow lifestyle, like, no one leads a more shallow lifestyle than me. <laughs> so really, actually, what if I actually made sort of a book where I actually, the character was me? Mm. And that's really how it became, I mean, to be honest, I didn't even think of the term autofiction when I wrote it, mm. but it, it really sort of became autofiction in a sense, where I sort of basically set it in exactly my world at that time. You know, I used to teach journalism, so I made the character journalism teacher. I, I had an angry cat that terrorised me, so he had a, an angry cat that terrorised him. That. I, I lived in, you know, the inner city in uh, Sydney at the time, so and I basically thought, look, I'll just mimic it completely. Mm. And and at the time, also to be honest, I was thinking of curb your enthusiasm, and you know, I decided of having a parallel character. Uh, 
and that's really and I never thought I'd get the book published too. So that's the other thing. It was really just going to be a fun, fun exercise. Uh, if I had actually thought it would get published, you know, I'm, I'm not too sure what I would have done. And, uh, but yeah, so that, that's really, that's the initial inspiration, Fight Club. And then I decided actually, well, I've just shell enough to fit in with this original character. It's interesting that you, you say, um, Fight Club uh, kind of kicked it off like that. I was thinking when I was reading it, um, and there's, there was a lot to unpack on what you just said because there's, there's, there's this balance of humour and kind of lamentation as well that I wanted to get into. But I was thinking more Great Gatsby sends the Gatsby-esque figure but still this kind of decadent, extravagant, sort of endless whirlwind party of um, meaningless kind of vapid people. And somewhat of a, of a Nick Carraway type character, but just a little bit less pedestrian because obviously um, Dave does a lot more shit. And the, the Larry David uh, likening, absolutely, because um, David certainly as a character does himself no particular favours in any sort of situation, somehow managed to fuck up pretty spectacularly a few times on seemingly a short thing. So, yeah, that's what I was thinking when, when I first read it. No, the great Gatsby's, I can see where you're coming from. It's something I didn't even think about un- until just now. Mm. But, uh, but there is a little bit. And I, I, I was, at the time, one of the influences was uh, Fellini, mm. you know, the movie. And I can never remember the name, of course, uh, which is a little awkward. Um, but, you know, the one where the English translation is The Sweet Life. Mm. And... Uh, and I read that it was about this, you know, journalist in the decadent Rome, and he's constantly at these, you know, celebrity parties. And that was the movie that first introduced the term paparazzi, actually, paparazzi. And that was also playing in my mind a little bit. So I can kind of see the connection with The Great Gatsby. Mm. Uh, that's actually something I'll be thinking a little bit about after this interview. <laughs> I like that. I like Good. it. Good. Let's talk about, because it, it's interesting, I certainly... Um, uh, I mean, I knew you were a journalist and that you wrote columns for the agency, Moy Herald and stuff like that. But um, the authenticity of the voice, it certainly felt like you've uh, taken the adage of write what you know, because it has certainly felt very authentic. And mind you, you've got much more experience uh, in the field than I do, but I've certainly been to enough kind of uh, lie, chain, steal my way into enough PR-driven events to know how authentic that is. So I was wondering, with all this, when you were writing it, because you, you, you've mentioned that you, you did um, yourself and your own experiences did serve as, a, as somewhat of the character. How much of the character is you and how much of the character is someone that you wished was you or you used the extremes of something that you might not have done, but you wanted to see it develop within this sort of kind of creative fiction narrative sense? Uh, that, that's a good question. I'm not sure I can give an honest answer. Uh, <laughs> Actually, by the way, La Dolce Vita was the, the name of the movie. That's it, that's it, okay. okay. Uh, and for some reason, I always get that wrong. How much of the character is I me? Mean, first off, I definitely don't want to be anything like that character. Uh, whether or not I'm like him, probably. Uh, but it's a tricky one. Really, what happened is a lot of the situations actually did happen to me. Uh, okay. But the, the characters, uh, and I'm not just saying this to protect myself, the characters actually are generally fictional mm. and what how the character handled those situations is often 
completely fictional, but the, the situations themselves were often right there. Mm. Uh, so, and that sort of kind of helped me with the skeleton. Uh, really, I did it all out of laziness because I just was constantly, constantly in this world that was so ridiculously ludicrous and unbelievable mm. that I thought, well, I just got to write this down. And it was very much the right what you know aspect. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, a lot of the, the crazy stuff that a lot of people that might seem unrealistic that actually did happen. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, for example, I did once go to an event where there were these women in extraordinarily high stiletto heels on a sloping, you know, ceiling that was slippery and wet, and they were holding on to. I think they were holding on to tigers. Uh, it was insane. I was thinking, how the hell could this not end in tragedy? And I did actually go up to the PR person and say, what the hell? Like, don't you really think this is risk? And I wasn't saying it really out of concern. I was really you know, taking a piss. I don't know why. And um, so a lot of things like that did actually happen. Hmm. Uh, there's often a couple of times in the novel, the guys in the bathroom, people are knocking on the door, screaming at him. That happened to me almost every freaking time I went out and sit me. Uh, you know, I did have women screaming, what is he doing, having a masty, you know, while I'm trying to find. So lots of things like that did happen to me. Uh, yeah, I love the, the humiliating episodes. Others, though, not so much. Uh, others were things that sort of came across going, okay, that would be great for a scene or things I heard about. So not, thank God not all of it came from my life. <laughs> but Lived experience. a bit of it did. And, uh, and to be honest, how much of the character is me? I'd like to think I'm a much, much better person. I wouldn't say better. I actually think the character's a nice guy. It's just a complete fucker. Uh, but look, there were definitely lots of elements of that character in me, and I'd be lying if I said there weren't. And to some degree, too, I wanted to parody who I was when I was younger. Excellent. Look, let's talk about because you just mentioned a phrase that I wanted to, to delve into a bit there with the character being a nice, a nice guy, a nice person. Um, I mean, I never thought he wasn't. I didn't think in case it actually got to a point a couple of times where I was like, is it more a case of um, almost like a borderline unreliable narrator? Because there was a couple of times where he um, took stock of seemingly situations in which he thought he might be potentially brushing up against or potentially abusing his position um, to perhaps try and swoon a girl. And... I still saw very little evidence of him actually being anything kind of untoward or unseemly throughout his activity. I don't know if that's because I'm, I myself am, am kind of young. And I think that David, I thought he was supposed to be in his mid thirties when, yeah. when I was reading it. So I didn't think he was kind of like a dirty old man in that regard, <laughs> but um, I never, yeah, I, I was wondering if, if he kind of maybe thought he was bad and there wasn't so much actual evidence of it because I mean, like he's got Jackson, the bad temper, cantankerous cat that he takes care of or seemingly in between you know, bouts of being hung over. Um, he's got Harold. He tries his best to accept one particular scene to look after his um, older gay best mate. Um, I just, yeah, I wondered about that. If that's what you were trying to do there, Dan, if you were trying to maybe kind of present this narrative of, is he really actually a bad guy? Is this somewhat internalized um, coming from the mind of a potential typically neurotic writer type. Now, the funny thing is that uh, every man who's read the book has actually thought the character's nice. Mm. Every, almost every woman who's read the book has thought he's an asshole. 
Mm. And it's this huge dichotomy between how men and women perceive the book. Mm. Uh, almost every, like, I haven't had a single guy go up to me and say, yeah, that character's sleazy or yeah, that character's wrong. And I've had lots of women go, I like the book, thank God. I like the book and some didn't. But, uh, but some said, look, I like the book despite the character. Uh, and not the only woman I know is, I've only known two women to, who read the book who actually thought the character was nice. Mm. Everyone else thought the character was an absolute piece of crap. Really? Okay. And, and I was actually a little surprised by that because he's not meant to be bad. He's just, mm. you know, on the contrary, he's desperately trying to be good. Uh, but uh, there's a huge kind of, and it's a weird one. You know, when I wrote him, he was meant to be a nice guy, but male. And in my eye, all men are, are pigs. And I want to be honest about that. You know, I'm a pig. Uh, we are, we are. And so it's a weird one, you know. Uh, one uh, woman, I won't mention the name because I don't want to. Uh, and she's lovely. And she actually said, no, I actually just thought it was honest. And to mm. be honest, that's kind of what I was aiming for. I was after an honest portrayal of men. And to me, the, he, this guy is actually on a nice spectrum of men. Mm. Uh, you know, like absolutely in a nice spectrum. But yeah, most women think it's an asshole. And if you think about it, most men in public culture, they're really portrayed as being way nicer than any man in real life, actually. Mm. Mm. Unless I actually am far worse than I think I am. A few people have pointed that out. I don't think so. And, you know, like you, you watch a lot of movies, you read a lot of books, and men just don't act like that. They are mm. not that fucking nice. Uh, my perception has always been that all men are sleazy, uh, but you've got bad sleazy and good sleazy, but we're all sleazy. Uh, that's been my perception. Uh, and really the idea with this guy is he's sleazy, but he's a nice sleazy, but sleazy. Uh, and, but it's starting to backfire on him. And really half of it's simply him trying to become a better person just for himself, like not having to rely on constantly chasing after women. And also kind of, trying to navigate the, the meteor, which doesn't gel with, you know, a, a lot of men in terms of crap. So was that bad? And crap, what do I do now? You know. Interesting. Um, I could, I'm, I'm not, now that you said that, I'm not also that surprised that obviously um, men by and large will have one reading of the book and then women by and large will have another reading of it. Um, that kind of probably harkens back to this whole, sort of um, lived experience of that you can being of the opposite sex or if you identify as the opposite sex, you can appreciate the, the life that uh, another member of the opposite sex would live, but you really, at the end of the day, it's a lived experience. You don't really, uh, can't truly fully in the entirety of it know um, their thoughts. But um, I never, yeah, I mean, the, another thing that you kind of did throughout, and I think that this kind of might have tempered the, the, the sleazier, the sleazier, aspects is that there was the depiction of other people's sexual sexuality, sexual appetites and proclivities throughout. And you didn't, it didn't just stick with men, but there was, there was Harold being gay uh, and his own interests and, 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 and where they lay in, in terms of um, who, who, who he was looking for, albeit seemingly failing quite a lot like Dan as well. But then you also had Amy, the, the uni student, and you also had Susan as well, who was quite um, unabashed about her sort of rapacious sexual appetites um, Susan Pink, obviously, um, Dave's boss. So I actually thought that uh, that might have been deliberately done to kind of offer this, rather than just this very narrow uh, 
viewpoint of sexuality within this this one particular individual, albeit the narrator's uh, sexual appetites, you've actually kind of expanded it to include, even in a pretty lean novel, um, two or three other people's sexuality and sexual proclivities as well. Is that something that was kind of deliberately done to showcase or, or contrast that, or is that something that just kind of happened organically? Uh, both. Right. Uh, so, I mean, in real life, uh, I mean, almost half my friends were always gay. Hmm. And I noticed that if they were straight, their behaviour would be considered misogynistic. Hmm. But yet, obviously, they don't actually hate other men. Hmm. Uh, it's that's the way men are, you know, straight, straight or gay. So that's why I really, you know, wanted the character of Harold to be gay because I didn't, I wanted to show that sleaziness is basically, you know, it's not to say there aren't misogynistic men because there are lots of, you know, asshole misogynistic men, hmm. but there is actually a firm difference between sleaziness and misogynistic. And for some reason I thought it's important to differentiate that. Hmm. So that's actually one reason why Harold, you know, was, uh, the other is simply that I've always been surrounded by women and men, gay and straight and both, who really just were openly, voraciously sexual. So it was just easy for me to write them, you know, mm. create amalgamations and create characters that were inspired by, you know, people I, I kind of knew. But, uh, but yeah, I did, I did really want to have... No, I didn't want to simply have one gender good, one gender bad, yeah. or one affiliation good, one bad. I wanted to actually know this is kind of, this is kind of life, you know. That's true, but then there's also times within these these moments, and again, this kind of harkens back to what I was um, touching on with with David. I mean, so there, there's the, there's the scenes that include like going to the Hellfire nightclub <laughs> where there's this kind of like absolute sleaze pit. Of, I'm sorry, Hellfire, but I mean, not, not as in, that's my viewpoint, but th- that essentially, and th- there's a couple of other uh, scenes similar where it's, it's you know, um, this quagmire of sexual depravity, seemingly. But um, some of those also offered up the most tender moments as well, which are actually kind of the, the more wholesome feelings, because I, I know that at least at a couple of points, Dave did wonder about Tori, and none of it was particular. I mean, there was a sexualized aspect to it with, with lusting after her, but a lot of it was more tender and kind of loving than that. And I wondered if that was, that was, again, you'd done that on purpose and that within this being surrounded, literally surrounded by leather clad bodies, near naked bodies, naked bodies. There are some of the, the more kind of, uh, I guess, loving moments about someone and, and no beyond just lust, but actually the, this kind of like wholesome and whole desire. Is that something that you thought of Dan or again, is that something that just happened organically? I've always been fascinated by the weird combination of tenderness and lust. Mm. I've always been interested in how they, they combine. Mm. So it wasn't, it wasn't entirely conscious, but it's something I've always been obsessed with. Mm. So it's actually really you know, interesting for me to, to hear your take on it. Uh, because, yeah, you know, that is actually something I wanted to be a part of it. But I'm, I'd be lying if I said I knew how conscious a decision that was. Mm. Uh, but it, a lot of it came from observation and I did notice little tender moments and you know for example in the, the Hellfire Club where you know there's a scene where there's a, a lesbian you know show where mm. you know one of them slapping and you know knocking the other one around but then afterwards they're you know having a really tender moment mm. Mm. Uh, and yeah I just sort of that really came about for me just thinking you know I can imagine that actually being the case in real life 
mm. know, light and tenderness being the backdrop to, to that. Uh, either that or it's just my hope <laughs> be the backdrop to that, yeah. Okay. Well, let's keep talking about this, this tender, this, this notion of tender, because another thing that I wanted to touch on, I mean, you've balanced uh, a sort of dark humour throughout, kind of like a little, observing this, this absurd, seemingly oftentimes absurd world of this, you know, going to this endless procession of events that just no one really has anything to do with each other. Um, but then, so there was the comedy of that, but then also, and you mentioned, I think within the first question about how some people read the, the novel really seriously, I did a combination of the two. So like, I did find it frequently funny, but the rest of the time and in the kind of like more low moments, I thought it was um, kind of poignant to the point of uh, depressing, really. Like, as in Dave was uh, inhibited by some pretty profound loneliness, I thought. I thought throughout it was, I mean, obviously there is the Larry David-esque sort of um, calamity that he's prone to, but a lot of it is like a profound loneliness. And I was wondering if that was like you maybe trying to make a commentary on contemporary dating uh, as a young, younger, youngish man within sydney or just in general contemporary society i was wondering about that yeah that was definitely meant to be a key theme throughout uh the idea that he actually doesn't really have any genuine friends he can't actually make any connections hmm. uh one of the running jokes throughout the book but there's the dark side to that joke is that he can't have a conversation with anyone for more than a couple of minutes. Mm. So, you know, all the PR functions he goes to, the parties, he tries to talk and he can't actually have a conversation for more than a couple of minutes with almost anyone. Mm. Uh, and that's going through. And I really wanted to play up this idea that he can't form a connection. And that idea was then meant to kind of link through to his original idea, which he comes up with at the beginning of the novel, of just having a shallow life because there's nothing else to it. And really the idea is that he's really desperately lost. He really has can't find any meaning whatsoever in life. Mm. Uh, and because he's heartbroken, he's just really lost. So there is kind of meant to be that thing. Uh, and throughout the book, he kind of goes through these different scenes and things that happen that actually, in a sense, make his life darker and darker. Uh, and I sort of wanted to use that A to show that actually we do sort of live in a life where so many of us don't have this fallback network. Uh, if you're not religious and I'm not myself, you don't have, you know, that spiritual side. If you're not, you know, in a huge family or in a European type environment where you're, you often are alone. Mm. And then if you're in a world like Sydney's you know, society, which I was in, there is no genuine connection. And a lot of people who you, you think are your friends often really aren't, or mm. at least on a very shallow level. So that is definitely something I wanted to have. I wanted to, his life, even though it's a comedy, I still wanted his life to get, in a sense, darker and darker as the book went on until it basically forced him to decide, well, what am I going to do with myself? Yeah, I, I certainly get that. And I, yeah, I mean, you, you, there was always light. There was always there was always a, an element of um, comedic light, but certainly there was some dark scenes. And it did really kind of, I think that you, uh, to borrow a wanky term, the hero's journey definitely was achieved because at the end, I mean, the opening um, first page is about these these fleeting sort of single second pleasures that, that is essentially what, what he then believes is life. Uh, what what life is really about, you know, the, the smoking, the, the first drag of a cigarette, 
um, the drinking of the first drink of beer, um, the first moment of penetration, all that sort of stuff. So, and then at the end, he realized that's, that that's, that's not such the case. And it's more just about actually accepting oneself. So that was interesting. It was a, it was a, it was a full journey. Um, I like that because it felt more for me, the stories that I like the most are the ones that have this feeling of like a rolling bolt of fabric of life. Yeah. You roll it out and you snip off one and that's the beginning of the novel and then you snip off another, but you can still feel that it's going to continue to go on like that without really any sort of uh, definitive closure. Life is life. So it was, it, it was interesting. It was interesting then. So I just, I just probably will think about it for a while thereafter, I would imagine. Bless. I, uh, to be honest, uh, originally when I wrote the novel, I wasn't going to have any redemption whatsoever. Uh, because I thought, well, that's life, you know, and like mm. most of us we just don't improve. Uh, we don't suddenly go, wow, I'm going to become better. We don't. Yeah. It's just not realistic. And I didn't, so originally it wasn't meant to be. But then I actually thought, you know, since I myself actually have changed a lot, I'd like to think, I thought, well, actually we do change. And, and I thought actually, yes, I did kind of like the idea of it not being a massive change, but mm. sort of a, and, I, and even at the end, he still struggles. He's still not, not exactly in a, an angel, but it's at least at least going, okay, maybe I can push myself just at least one step, you know, one step to being a little, a little less of a fuck up. Yeah, it wasn't like it was this bell tolling, um, dove streaming into you know like the the sunlight and stuff like that. It was just it was just a, a minor thing, which was which was just a, a new a new uh, perspective I found. So no, no, it wasn't like you beat it over the head. Sorry, I didn't I didn't want to give that impression. It was just like I just like the the little kind of oh the oh moment that you you do get you do get in life like that. Um. I want to talk a little bit about, because you, you mentioned about how you didn't think the novel would ever get published. And I always like this. I always like this, this is hearing this because what it really makes me wonder is how liberating that was because it then in theory, um, certainly within me and my own writing, I feel like I assume that no one's going to fucking read it, meaning that I can do whatever I want. So for you, I wanted to know if there was indeed that sort of uh, sense of kind of elation and liberating that you could do whatever you wanted, or if you still felt like you were pairing stuff back, mindful of the fact that, because you've lived so much in this world, and uh, I was wondering if you're like, you're like oh, I, I have to tinker with this person a bit. This PR agent is definitely going to know that this is, this is her or this is him. They're going to kill me or, you know, this publication is going to think this is me. Did you have to feel like you sanitized or you were just like, fuck it, no, no one's going to read it, so I'm just going to do whatever I want? Uh, the first draft was a bit of that. I mean, I'm not, I'll repeat this again. You know, when you repeat something enough times, people realize you're lying. But honestly, and whenever people say honestly, people go, no, he's lying. The, the book is more fictional. Yep. Than not. Uh, the scenes, the moments that happen in real life were so ridiculous, I used them. But, you know, th there is no Susan in real life. And yep. there's no one even like Susan. So I was pretty safe and she was you know, there from the get-go. Uh, there, there is no Harold in real life. Uh, I've known a lot of people. So, so I was always safe in that respect. The one thing that I'm not really safe with is I'm sure that you know, the people who used to work with at the paper, if they even 
think of which I'm sure they don't, they're all, they all just assume that paper is the, the Herald. Uh, so that's the one thing, you know. Mm. Uh, so I'm probably completely banned from that paper for life. Uh, but yeah, I did have that, that thought. Uh, my main thought was that I didn't want to have any of my ex-girlfriends thinking, oh, was that me? Mm. So I really was careful from the get-go of, no, no, that's, that's completely different. Uh, but yeah, in the, in the first draft to answer your question, I really just sort of wrote it. But to be honest, most of it ended up being fictional anyway. Uh, what did happen though is that after the book got accepted, which I did not expect, I then went, crap, 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 crap. Now I have to think, can this, can this, can this? So there was one, I actually did put in a few real life celebrities in there. Yeah, I came across in real life and I changed them completely. So no one right, okay. idea. So that I did do. Uh, and it was a, a character of an ex who really wasn't meant to be like a real life ex. But I went, crap, crap, I could see how maybe she would think about that. So I changed it. So now really any of my exes could think it's them. And I think it's several too. And I've had a few contact me. And I'm like, no, 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 no. So, um, but yeah, really it was the celebrity cameos that I actually took out. And I changed it. Right, okay. I thought, crap, if they sue me, I'm screwed. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. I, I thought you could be a bit cheeky and, and maybe get away with it. I don't know. I don't know on this. You know, I don't know about libel and stuff like that, to be honest. But I just think of um, Tom Cruise's appearance in um, American <laughs> Psycho. Uh, Patrick Bateman meets him in a lift, or at least in the book, not in the, obviously in the movie. But and I was just I was wondering about that. It's interesting that you say that you did tinker with it a bit, though, Dan. I was wondering, and I kind of wanted to move on to a more general your career as it stands now. So, is this the the first um, long form like novel type that you've that you've written, or no? So my my sorry tale is that I actually wrote a novel for for ten years, which I thought was my masterpiece. I got an agent, it was shipped around. One publisher seemed to be interested, and then it fell apart, and and so then all of a sudden everything just went over. Uh, and with this book, I, it was one book that I kind of tinkered with, you know, in the early days, in, in the breaks, writing a big one, mm. just because it was fun. And then I would write, I'll just do it, and I wrote in a year just, you know, for the pocket book. And, uh, and, then, and then I sort of just sat in it for a little bit. And late, to be honest, really, I just late one night, and I think I had a couple of drinks. I just went what the hell and so I just sent it off and I actually I wouldn't say I completely forgot about it but I didn't really think much about it mm. and then two days later bang and that's how it happened but it was really something that this book was really meant to be just a you know whatever I'll just write something just to get stuff out of me and just to write something completely different from this other book that I spent 10 years on uh, so it was really yeah, it was just meant to be fun. To be honest, it's just meant to be a fun, trashy read with you know, a couple of deep themes in it, but uh, it was really just meant to be a fun, fun read. It makes you think at the same time. Yeah, that's that's how that's how I'd read it as well. I mean, like I had good fun reading it, and you're right. There, there's in this in, in you know buried under these kind of uh, funnier scenes. There's some yeah, some pretty deep themes kind of sustain and prevail throughout. But um. I wondered as well, because you mentioned now this, this, this huge um, project that you worked on for a decade. Um, so it's almost like Joycean type 
um, <laughs> level of level of, of work and slaving over it. I wondered what's the biggest challenge that you yourself have faced as a writer, Dan, particularly maybe it could be with this, this particular during the shallows or it could be in general, but what is it that you yourself have had to face and overcome in order to kind of keep being a writer and now realize this, uh, this project that you've written? Oh, I think, I think, well, I don't know. I was going to say, I think every writer, no matter who the fuck am I to say every writer. By the way, I, I swear constantly in, in my normal life and I normally don't when I'm on camera and I think you've inspired me to swear by your own throne. So <laughs> I might thank you good. for that. Good, good, good. I, uh, so look, for me, there's so many, you know, things. I think for me, you have the, the insecurity of am I good enough? Yep. Then you have the idea of will this ever be published? For me, for, for really from the beginning of my writing career, I've always had this thing of am I doing this to get published or am I doing this just for myself? When I do this, if not, I never read it. And throughout my life, I've gone back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Uh, and I don't think there's really an honest answer to that. I think really it's a bit of both. Mm. Uh, I think the, the rejection, of course, is a huge one. Uh, I mean, I've been rejected more times than, than you can possibly, possibly count. Whenever you hear stories about how people have been, you know, writers have been rejected like a hundred times or 200 times or 500 times, mm. I think amateurs. I went through a period of my life where there'd be at least one or two rejection emails every day. Mm. Uh, so that's one thing, you know, that I really sort of had to, you know, get around. Uh, I think he, for me, it's always that balance of insecurity and ego where part of me thinks I'm the best writer on the planet. The other part thinks I'm shit, I'm crap. What the hell am I doing? And you keep flipping back and forth, back mm. and forth. Uh, and I keep writing because I think actually, I think I am okay at it. Uh, but then, you know, you go, well, I got all these rejections in one hand. <laughs> so it's, it's a tricky one. Um, and with my writing life too, it's been tough because for me, it's been, look, I don't gamble, but you know, when you play a pokey machine, uh, pokey, uh, pokey, uh, I'm not even sure how you say it, and then you get one ring and then you keep playing again, you keep losing and losing and losing and you get a ring and then you keep losing and losing. For me with my book, uh, both uh, mainly, you know, with the one I spent 10 years on, I had some people saying, this is amazing, going, yes, Yes, and they were really, you know, credible people, authors and editors. And then just, the, and then you get a thousand rejections. And then you'll have one person really credible going, I loved it. Mm. And then the rejections. And so it's a really tough one. Uh, so for me, the toughest thing was trying to figure out, is this actually good? Should I keep trying? Why am I trying? Uh, and that's something I'm still going through now. Uh, well, now I'm going, should I write another book? Can I be asked? <laughs> Am I good enough? Should I go back? And it's this circle of doubt and fear and ego and insecurity. Well, surely this could be qualified as as a win. Like one of you, you've hit the to to go off your analogy there or metaphor, the the pokies. You've hit the feature with this getting published. So maybe that will be enough of a um, endorphin type uh, euphoria to to sustain you for a while longer, fighting the good fight. No. If you knew me, you'd realise, no, I do not think this is a... <laughs> well, look, you definitely... 
you definitely nailed it in terms of what you're talking about there after rejections. I am well-versed in that. Perhaps not to the extent that you are, but I'm most definitely well-versed in, uh, in how crushing rejections are. And you always get them. You'll get a barrage like bang, 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 uh, right around the time that you're thinking that you're a real piece of shit and that you, you suck at writing and stuff like that. So I'm very well-versed in that. Probably my favorite moment in Drowning in the Shallows, actually. It was only like this kind of like throwaway moment that just happened. It was um, after Dave's article comes out and he goes to the pet store and he sees his article has been shredded and he's been using, I was like, this guy, he gets it. He gets it. He gets that. He gets the plot. He gets the folio of doing it all. So yeah, no, that definitely, I was definitely with you on, on that part. That actually did happen to me, by the way. I oh, really man. did see a cat crap <laughs> on my article in a cage. <laughs> did, it, did it really? Oh, that's. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, look. And I was really proud of it too. I was really proud of that article. And I really was egotistical enough to be walking around and going past a cafe going, are they reading my article? And I really did see a woman start reading my article and then just flick to the next page. And I really did want to go up and say, what is wrong with it? Why, why can you keep reading it? And I then really did see a cat crap on my page in a, in a pet store. And I went, okay, that, that's my day done. I'm, I'm going home. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to I'm glad to see that's not the be all and end all, and that didn't um, completely stop you from from ever writing anymore. It's interesting that you say that um, that it's kind of like this balance, and that this is some pretty standard type things of um, not so much imposter syndrome, but the you know the age old am I good enough? You know, yes I am, no I'm not. This oscillation between the two. I was wondering though, because I mean, like you've made a um, career prior to what you're doing now for your your media um, business, but I was, I was actually surprised because I was wondering. I thought that. Uh, Again, and this harkens back to what you, you've done with the um, Drowning in the Shallows, is the, uh, being a journo and trying to actually uh, eke out an existence on that. And that was the thing that you did really, really well with the book was this kind of like uh, feeling of like everyone's going to get round up and shot at any one point. Redundancies arrive. You, you keep managing to go to parties because PR just aren't keeping up with who's been made redundant or they haven't even read the article. So you can just kind of like, but ask your way into those sort of type situations. I actually wonder if that, if that um, doing that, as in you focus so, so much so kind of like on, as it were, surviving in that sort of field would have affected your chances of actually getting the time to write or something like that. So, yeah, but that wasn't the case. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, to a large degree, I wrote this book after, you know, after I lived that life. Right. So there were times when I'd sort of, Go, this is a great scene, I'd write it down, and then I, that's it. And mm. I'd take notes. And some of them, quite frankly, I still have nightmares of, so I just remembered them when it came to writing the book. Uh, so that part, uh, yeah. But I mean, at the time, I did you know, try writing, you know, there's a previous book, and yeah, it, it did screw up your ability to write. Uh, and I try and find 10 minutes when I wasn't hungover when I was actually, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's very much. Uh, which, you know, you mentioned The Great Gatsby at the beginning, where, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald's great, great, greatest challenge was that he was going to so many parties he couldn't actually write. Uh, and that was actually seriously screwed up his career, uh, where he, once he became successful, he just never, never wrote. He was just always drunk going to parties. Yeah. So um, not that I can compare myself to many of my shape or form, but I thought, well, at least we, we can bring The Great Gatsby in again with, with that element. But, yeah, you can't really write much when you live like it's certainly not that well. Yeah. yeah. Well, I did write the, the, the first chapter after 
I wrote that first chapter three in the morning when I got home and I was rewired and I went, this is it, this is perfect, bang, 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 bang. Uh, so I did do some of the writing while, you know, while completely drunk. Yeah. There's, there's some quote from some famous author and it says, uh, you, never need to ed- you never need to edit anything that you've had to get up in the middle of the night to write. So I'm wondering if that kind of applies to what you were talking about there with the 3 a.m. No, I, I cry bullshit on that. You have to read everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, that first scene, actually, the way I wrote it, 3 in the morning, was largely the way it appears now. Uh, mm. to, but, yeah, I still had to edit it. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, oddly enough, there is, there is truth in that. There is truth in that. Well, Dan, last question, and again, it's a kind of age-old but a goodie, I find, is what advice would you give to listeners that are aspiring authors, established authors, what advice would you give to... Let's, let's go with aspiring because I find we'll keep it more narrow rather than this really broad question. What advice would you give to aspiring authors? Oh, look, I'd say, right, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, I'd say write for yourself, not to get yep. problem. Absolutely. Uh, you know, with my 10-year project, Toward the end, I was really just writing it for myself and I enjoyed it. And I actually got the most out of it. And the book actually improved the most by doing that. Uh, and I, with this, and with Drowning in the Shallows, I really did write it for myself. Uh, and maybe that's also what I got, got published. So I'd say first thing is write for yourself. And the second thing is toughen up with rejections. I sometimes see in writer forums people complaining that they got a rejection. I think, what, what the hell? You know? mm. Uh, so yeah, that's one thing. The other thing, toughen up with objections, get it, think about whether there was any truth in it, learn how to critically evaluate your work and, and then move on. Excellent. Excellent advice. Never heard that one before about the toughening up rejections, but it is very, very good advice because that is something that if you're going to really pursue it, you're going to be getting a lot of them rather than a lot, uh, and a lot less acceptances. So no, that's, that's really good advice. Um, Dan, look, thank you so much for appearing on The Right Way. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, my man. It's my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun for me. Excellent. Thank you. So, everyone, that was Dan Kaufman discussing his book, Drowning in the Shallows. Uh, I'm going to put the link in the to the website of Melbourne Books, where the book is available for purchase, in the description of this episode on ye old Spotify. Thank you again so much for listening. Uh, I can assure you there is many more episodes to be coming up in the coming weeks. I think I've got something like uh, the next six consecutive weeks in a row, weekends in a row, of course. Uh, I'm going to be chatting with someone and uploading them episodes for your ears, listening pleasure. Thank you again so much for listening to me and for your patronage. And yeah, keep listening. And be sure, if you haven't already, to listen to the previous episodes, all of which are available there. And thank you very much for doing what you do.